I have an acquaintance named Christine. One day her leg began to swell and the doctors diagnosed her with a blood clot, a very dangerous situation. Christine had worked in the medical field for years, so she was able to stay home and give herself injections every day rather than spend all this time in the hospital. We prayed for Christine, but as the days stretched into weeks, Christine, lying there in her bed and in her home, went progressively stir-crazy. Don't you sometimes just find yourself saying, what is God bragging his feet for? My friends, uh, Ed and Candy, moved to Denver. Candy and I had been involved in ministry together. And Ed got this fabulous job offer. He came to me that last day to say goodbye. I tried to get him to change his mind. I said, good news, I heard from God. The move is off. But he didn't buy it. They were on their way. They did not obey my will for their lives. Most of us, I think, at some point or another, have had that feeling that God wasn't exactly on our wavelength. Jesus was extremely interested in confronting this feeling. One day in his travels, Jesus comes to the town of Bethsaida, and some people bring him their blind friend. Now, we don't know if the blind man had any faith for himself, but his friends did. And over the course of Jesus' ministry, it appears that sometimes this was enough. So, what do these friends ask Jesus to do? Touch him, they said. They'd seen or heard about Jesus healing people by touching them. It's happened countless times all over northern Palestine. But now these guys who bring their friend to Jesus, does Jesus do what they're begging him to do? No. Instead, he takes the guy by the hand and leads him out of town. I like the picture of Jesus leading this blind man out of the village because I feel like I've been that blind man. I was to a point in the mid-80s where my life was a wreck and I didn't have a clue what was going to become of me. I didn't have any faith for myself. A few of my friends and family had to have faith for me. I couldn't see how God could possibly work in my situation. But Jesus led me out of that village. He took me to a different place. He said, I'm going to take you on a journey, Doug. I'm going to change you. I'm going to heal you. But when you open your eyes, Doug, you're not going to be in the same place you were before. So often we ask God to meet a need or accomplish something in our lives so that we can maintain the status quo. We ask Him to work on our behalf so we won't have to change or adjust. We want Him to preserve what we have where we are. When His priority is to take us somewhere else. Life is a journey, not a destination. Jesus doesn't want you camped out somewhere spiritually. He's going to grow you by changing you. He's going to change you by changing your circumstances. In fact, I may need to get to a different place before God gives me my breakthrough. I may need to let Jesus lead me by the hand for a while, out of my familiar surroundings, away from my comfort zone, before He can really do the work in me that He wants to do. So, now, Jesus has this blind man outside the village, and what does he do? We want it to be a scene from a Disney movie, don't we? The computer graphics swirl around, and there are breathtaking sound effects, and 
the guy can see. But no, Jesus spits on him. I honestly don't think Jesus could get a job in the Disney script department today. He has a different idea of dramatic effect than I do. Our perspective today is it's humiliating to have somebody spit on you. It's right up there with the prostate exam or any number of other embarrassments. But sometimes, let's face it, God leads us into a humbling, even humiliating position before he can do his best work in us. My pride is the toughest thing for God to break through. I want you to think highly of me. I want you to regard me as cool, intelligent, witty, fashionable. Then I find myself sitting with a friend who looks me in the eye and says, Doug, I'm sorry, but you have been a major fool about something. And I know they're right. It's sickening. It's humbling. It's like God spitting in my eye. But it's great for my spiritual life because that's where I turn to God and say, oh, please help me grow up. Help me tune into the voice of your spirit better next time and earlier in the process so I don't screw up like this again. Open my eyes. Open my ears. And God says, ah, Dougie, that's more like it. Well, the scriptural account doesn't tell us that the blind man objected in any way to being spit on. But anyway, God relates to each person individually. We're not mass-produced droids traveling down God's assembly line. The way God gets through to me is not necessarily the way he'll get through to you. I can't dictate what's going to get your attention, what's going to help you learn and grow. All I know is God is committed to working in each and every believer's life for the good, according to his purpose. That will take different shapes in different people's lives. When I need a touch from God in some area of my life, how should I get into the proper position? First, I need to value God's variety. Now, the blind man's friends clearly wanted Jesus to touch him and heal him. But Jesus didn't follow the strategy that the blind man's friends prescribed. In fact, he went beyond their prescription. I'm glad God doesn't limit himself to my narrow view. I'm glad he uses my prayers to teach me, to draw me closer to him, to gradually show me more of his perspective, but he doesn't necessarily do everything according to my specs. I think about the prayers I've prayed down through my life and what a mess I would have made of things if he'd given me everything I asked for. So, the blind man's friends, prayed that Jesus would touch him. They didn't pray for a trip out of town or spit in the eye. And they sure didn't pray for a gradual healing. They wanted something instant. What do we learn from Jesus' response to the situation? He can do it however he wants. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul points out quite correctly that God didn't have to make us the way he made us. He didn't have to create a world where people were free to choose to turn their backs on him. He could have made us robots. I'm paraphrasing here. We could have had no opportunity to experience the empowerment of a free will. Furthermore, Paul says, God wasn't under any obligation to create a plan of redemption for us when we turned our backs on him. 
He wasn't under any requirement to include Romans 8.28 in the Bible. He didn't have to work all things for good to those who love him. He could have decided to create a world where only bad things happen to bad people. And furthermore, furthermore, only bad things happen to good people. Paul points out that because God is so good, we gradually get this idea that he had to love us. But that's not the case. He chooses to love us. Romans 9, 20 and 21 says, Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why'd you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Maybe the best picture of this is a little child playing with Legos or old-fashioned building blocks. That child can build a tall tower, make it beautiful, make it ornate, make it impressive, all for the express purpose of knocking it down and watching the pieces scatter. As far as those building blocks go, that child is sovereign. He doesn't answer to anybody. Neither does God. But then in Romans 9.22, Paul turns the picture around. He asks this hypothetical question. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath which were originally prepared for destruction. He's saying, what if God starts lovingly assembling the building blocks of your life, but the project doesn't quite work out? What if the more the child labors over it, the uglier and weaker and stupider the tower of building blocks looks? That child has the prerogative to keep working on it even if it's hopeless, even after he's given up and the tower is only four or five blocks tall and it's crooked and it's wobbly and it just won't seem to cooperate with him. That child has the freedom to keep it, to protect it from other children, to cherish it just the way it is if he wants to. That's what God does. Paul says in Romans 9.23 that he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. That's how God decided to set up our world. He decided in advance that he would show us mercy, even though we had no way of earning it or deserving it. The question isn't, why doesn't God move in my situation? The question is, why should God even care about my situation? That is a miracle. He loves me, even though he doesn't have any reason to. Even the best, most moral person with the cleanest lifetime behavior record and the longest list of good works doesn't measure up against a perfect God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we're all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but God loves us anyway. He's sovereign. He could do it any way he wanted, but he chooses to care for us, to give us his best. <laughs> Thank God. So, when I need a touch from God in some area of my life, number two is I need to submit to God's sovereignty.
Next, at the end of Mark 8, 23, Jesus asks the blind man, do you see anything? Now, Jesus could have just healed him and walked away, but that wasn't Jesus' style. He asked questions all through his earthly ministry. He was always probing, asking, why do you feel this way? What are you thinking? How do you see this situation? He continually probed people's inner works, not because he needed to know, since he already sees inside everyone. Psalm 44 says he knows the secrets of the heart. But Jesus prodded people to answer questions about the inner workings of their hearts because they needed to know. Jesus pushed people to think hard about their motives, their perspectives, and, and to challenge their own paradigms, not to live life on autopilot, but to keep pushing themselves, to, to see themselves clearly and, and to grow as a result of what they learn from that kind of investigation. You know, I'm, I'm always nervous when I hear somebody say, well, that's just how I'm wired. You know, that may be true, but that statement sounds suspiciously like the end of the journey rather than the journey itself. When we discover how we're wired, that's only the beginning of the process God wants to work in us. Because now comes the challenge of discovering every step of the way how to push back on our wiring for the sake of advancing our spiritual growth, our relationship with Christ, and the process of becoming more like Him. We need to be skeptical of our wiring, to hold our thoughts and actions up to the light of Christ's character and see if there's a way we need the, the Spirit of our Lord to reshape us. I've had to deal with this in my own walk with Christ. I, I'm wired as a driver. You know, I see a goal and I go for it. I'm not naturally wired to care about you while I'm walking all over you to get to my goal. God wired me as a driver, but that doesn't mean I'm supposed to spend my life in default mode, leaving bodies in my wake. I'm supposed to spend my life learning to be guided by the Spirit of Christ within me to shape that driver instinct according to his love. I'm on a journey learning to love, learning to care about people's feelings, learning to be patient when your feelings somehow interrupt or slow down my project. So when I'm in the middle of a problem situation, God calls me to keep my eyes open. Do you see anything? He asks me. Doug, what do you see? What's going on around you? What's your situation? What's happening inside you? Collect the data. Just because you're a Christ follower, don't check your brain at the door. Think, analyze, be realistic. Jesus doesn't expect me to spend my life with my head in the clouds on some kind of emotional, spiritual high. He says, be realistic. Uh, you're hurting? Let's look hard at why you're hurting. Some people feel they have to verbalize positively even when their situation is negative. You know, they've taken a few isolated scripture passages about the value of a positive outlook, and they've spun them into kind of a whole religion. They get into a terrible situation and they can't speak the truth about it. They feel compelled to say, everything's fine. <laughs> it's not true. Well, that's not faith. It's falsehood. Sure, God is committed to giving them his best through even a difficult situation, but that's not the same as everything's fine. If Jesus expected us to verbalize positively by faith, even when our situation is negative in reality, then when he asked the blind man, do you see anything? The blind man should have said, I'm healed. I see perfectly. Thank you, Jesus. But the blind man told the truth. He was in a kind of limbo. And he said so. Uh, I see people, he said, but they look like trees walking around. His response seems to indicate that he wasn't born blind. 
was tragically common in Palestine in those days for people to go blind due to disease. And this man seemed to know what a tree looked like. He had a frame of visual reference. He seems to have had memories of things he had seen before he lost his sight. But this man's healing wasn't complete. His healing was only partial at this point, which wasn't what his friends had prayed for. You know, I think sometimes God stretches out the process of his work in our lives so that we can see it and experience it more fully and so that it takes up more of the calendar of our lives, which may help us remember it better. So, when I need a touch from God in some area of my life, number three is I need to trust God's timing. Now, the formerly blind man finally did see everything clearly. But this line comes at the end of the story, not at the beginning. You know, when we get in trouble, we usually tend to think that we see things clearly and we pray accordingly. God, here's the solution. Go make it happen. But the point of praying is not for us to tell God what to do. The point of praying is to allow God to lead us to an understanding of His love, to draw us closer to His heart, help us finally get the God's eye view. Someday you'll see everything clearly. It may take years. You may have to look back 10 or 20 years from now before you see clearly what you were going through today. And for some of us, our situations will never come clear to us in this life, only in eternity. But we will see clearly someday. Paul says in Philippians 1 that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the completeness of your love for us. Help us to trust your love. Help us to lean back in it. And I thank you. Amen. Amen.